Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Today's episode is a repost of an interview that I did on the Clyde Golden Podcast called Input Doc. Clyde Golden is a marketing agency here in Seattle. I met the founder at some networking event a year ago or something like that. We kind of kept in touch. And he invited me on the podcast to talk about personal branding, basically like how to build your reputation and audience online on social media or YouTube or a blog or anywhere else. So if that sounds like something you are interested in, and you should be, because that's something that really can only help you no matter what you want to do, whether you've got a business to run, whether you are a musician or creator of any kind, like everybody should have at least some kind of audience. You don't have to have the biggest audience in the world, but having some sort of audience is so important for everybody because it doesn't really matter how good you are at what you do. If nobody knows that you're doing it, if nobody knows that you exist, that's going to be a problem. So if you are interested in building your audience, influence, authority, and all that stuff, then this one is for you. But before we get into it, I wanted to mention a couple things that you can do to support the show if you are so inclined. Number one is you can share it on social media, whether that is Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Bebo, MySpace, whatever you want to do. We appreciate all of it. If you don't mind tagging me and tagging the guest, that really helps us get the word out. Also, if you really like us, you can support us on Patreon. Patrons get access to every show a week early. There's a members-only private Discord server that I hang out in all the time. There's a way to have me review your music or your photography or design portfolio or product that you put out, anything like that that you might want to get my feedback on. You can check that out at the link in the show notes. And I want to thank everybody who supports us on there. It is because of you guys that we're able to do the show. That's how we're able to hire Deanna, the producer and editor that makes all this happen. So I'm sincerely grateful for each and every one of you. And if you want to join the Patreon gang, hit that link in the show notes. And with that out of the way, let's get into it. Clyde Golden. I'm Tim Yaden, and this is Input Doc. It's the podcast where we explore what marketers need and what agencies provide. In this episode, I'm chatting with Finn McKenty. He's a marketing strategist and writer based in Kenmore. Finn is also a YouTuber. He's known as the Punk Rock MBA, and in only two years, he's amassed a following of nearly a quarter million subscribers. Here's our conversation. I just start recording in the beginning. And as I stumble into this thing, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, I spent a number of years as a newspaper reporter and would go out and interview people and you'd have a quiet moment before you got going where you could get used to each other as a human sitting at a table or standing or, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes they were interviews under duress, at which point they happened much quicker <laughs> at that point. Like, Tim, if you could take the revolver away from my <laughs> temple, that would make me feel a lot more comfortable in this interview. I think you might have called the wrong fella, sir. <laughs> I think that would be the response to that one. Um, we should go ahead and... Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> I never ran into that. Let's put it that way. Sometimes people would hang up on me mid-sentence, and I always found that to be a fascinating response to a difficult question. Just mid-sentence, oh, well. mid-sentence click. I mean, that's a statement in itself. <laughs> it is. So do you consider yourself a freelancer or an agency? And does that even matter? Or is it something else? Uh, you know, I would say that that distinction is really just a, a branding decision at this point. Whether you're a one-person agency or a freelancer, to me, is a matter of, you know, which one do you think will send the right message to the people that you want to work with? I call myself a coach at this point because the offering that I have been focusing on the last couple months is a program. It's a productized offering where I take people through a program designed to help people grow their personal brand as a way of either turning their creative passion into their income or for people who are founder CEO types, grow their personal brand as a way of growing their companies brand. So it's a four part program. We do four Zoom calls like this. There's some homework in between uh, and then there's some deliverables after the fact. But we know it's going to be four meetings and it costs this much. And here's what here's here's the process that we're going to go through. So if that sounds compelling to you, let's do it. Uh, if it does not sound compelling to you, then all good. I'm not the person you want to work with. Here's about lifetime value versus acquisition cost. And if mm -hmm. and if that is penciling out for you and it could be it's a little early to know and I got to get back to you in a year. Well, my acquisition cost is zero because I just mention it like in my videos and my podcasts. And because I have, I'm going to get like over a million views a month on YouTube and cost to create those would be your acquisition cost. Well, not really, because I just mentioned it at the beginning of a video for 10 seconds, but it's to an audience that you've created over time and invested quite a yes. bit of time into. Yes. So I get paid a bunch of ways on those videos. I get uh, the YouTube ad money, uh, which is pretty decent. I also have brand deals from, you know, Skillshare and Dollar Shave Club and stuff like that. I have patrons and then I also promote something at the beginning of it. So, you know, you, you, you could decide how you want to think about that from an attribution modeling perspective if you want. So it's interesting that you've made a change from a fella who probably made a lot of deliverables to people and gained a lot of knowledge and used a lot of knowledge over time to simply being charged for the value of your knowledge versus producing a deliverable. Yes, exactly. And I'm curious about the benefit to you versus on the first one, deliver, uh, deliverables, you're going to need a team and you're going to need to scale because there's only so much that you can do. Like emotionally, yep. there's only so many feelings you can absorb from clients. <laughs> <laughs> Often yes. how I look at it, I'm going to need more people and more help here. That's and a really good way to put it, actually. I hadn't thought of that. Oh my God. Yeah. And they're wonderful people, but seriously, yeah. there's only so much you can handle. And because you're solving problems for people, you're spotting their issues and yep. working together with them to solve their problems. And you're going to need a team of people that you trust. And that alone is a, is a massive project unto itself. And so you've turned around and created an audience over several years and you found a niche that works the punk rock MBA. Mm -hmm. And then now you're leveraging that into various forms of revenue, it sounds like. Yes. Um, however, I know that YouTube is probably not going to last forever because it's just like any other th you know form of entertainment, like no TV show lasts forever other than The Simpsons. And I don't think I'm The Simpsons. So that's not going to last forever. So I, I've got to be thinking of like, you know, where is this headed? And so that's why I spun up this coaching thing, which I can sort of uh, keep as a um, side project for now. But if I ever wanted to ramp that up to be my full-time income, I think I would be able to do that pretty quickly. And ultimately, where I where I want to go with it, and this is maybe a, a psychological, 
you know, I, I put a lot of energy into managing my own psychology because I think that that is a huge part of doing what we do. And, and in many ways, I think it's the most important part of it. You know, the a friend of mine, uh, Aram Arslani, and if he happens to be listening, uh, has a framework where he, he does executive coaching and he thinks about it as there's a mindset and a skill set part. And the the mind, a lot of people focus on the skill set part, which is a tactical way of how do you do this or that. But the mindset part is actually the prerequisite for the skill set part. And I think people uh, oftentimes over index on skill set over mindset. I try to do the opposite because I think if you have the right mindset, the skill set part will fall into place. So anyhow, uh, one of the things I realized about myself is that I didn't always think big enough and I didn't challenge myself enough. And I sometimes kind of handicap myself by setting a goal that was quote unquote realistic when maybe I should have challenged myself to do something that was quote unquote unrealistic, but actually, you know, these things are oftentimes self-fulfilling prophecies. So with that and with that in mind, my my uh, I think your last question was about the big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh, mine is to get AWS to pay me a million dollars to help them uh, understand how to more effectively tell their story, because I think they're really bad at it and they should be setting the conversation around cloud computing and they're not and they should be. I think that's a tremendous opportunity for them. You know, they're throwing off billions of dollars in cash every quarter. So if they pay me a million dollars and I make just the tiniest incremental lift in their business. That was the best million dollars I ever spent. Here's sure. a little bit about the the types of coaching that you do and the content of that session and and what the what the promise is to somebody who would sign up and who that who that audience is. Who is that that person? The first kind of person is someone who wants to be a professional creator of some kind, whether that's YouTuber, podcaster, photographer, graphic designer, anything like that, because I've done all of those things and I can help other people figure out how to do it and turn that into their full-time job or something close to it. The second kind of person is someone who is the public face of a company, which would typically be the founder or CEO, but doesn't have to be. And the strategy there generally for me at least revolves around thought leadership so setting the conversation around the particular thing that they talk about just like I was talking about with cloud computing growing their personal brand as a way of growing their company's brand and the reason I suggest that strategy is because if you look at social media accounts for brands they're usually crickets like nobody wants to follow a company's social accounts because why would you there's you know the game plan here they're just going to try to sell you shit and nobody wants that so as an example that everyone will understand look at elon musk versus tesla you know look at the difference between elon's accounts and tesla's accounts i mean the tesla accounts do okay but i mean elon is obviously on another level now whether you like the things that he does or says that's another conversation but there is no question that his social media antics and i don't really like i i don't really like his online presence personally but there's no question that his online antics have added hundreds of millions of dollars of shareholder value because i mean that's the reason why their share price went what 5x or something in the last six months it's not because the fundamentals six x it's because elon is so disproportionately good at commanding mindshare that all these like Robin Hood kids hopped on there and loaded up on the stock. Yeah. Reddit loves Elon. Yeah. And not that I'm suggesting that anybody else do exactly what he does, but that's like a very, I actually don't, I, I would not recommend that exact strategy, but it illustrates the point of using, if you have a public face of a company who is capable of doing, of, of playing that role, it illustrates how valuable that is as a strategy that translates into real business objectives. You know, I think a lot of people look at this stuff through a performance marketing lens and you don't want to ask about CPAs and stuff like that. You're looking at it the wrong way. Like if you don't think that commanding mindshare drives business results, then I, I, I guess we shouldn't work together because 
because to me, that's just such a silly myopic way of looking at things that we're probably never going to see things the same way. Let me understand Mindshare. Is that similar to share of voice? Yeah. Brand, whatever you want to call it. It's like the fact that Coca-Cola spends however many billions of dollars a year on brand advertising either. And, and people roll their eyes at that, especially people like in you know the tech world roll their eyes at like any kind of brand marketing. Well, either you're stupid or either they're stupid and and you're the only smart person, or maybe brand marketing is valuable. And I'm not saying, you know, there's this tension between like brand and growth. I think they both matter. I don't think one is, I think they work together and they're both important. Purely hypothetical. Pretend you were speaking to an owner of a small creative agency. Yeah. <laughs> In Seattle. Okay. I'll, I'll try. I'll be, it's a bit of a leap, but I'll try. Keep, keep it hypothetical here. Yeah. And um, there's a recession on. And yes. um, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, there's been, you know, lots of public discord with Black Lives Matter yep. um, and protests. And, and the truth is consumer confidence in all likelihood is dampened badly. Sure. Um, what, like, what's a process or, or a methodology you'd have me to, you'd have, have me think about as I begin to think about, you know, the type of marketing I should be doing and not even channel specific, just creation of content or seeking mind mm -hmm. share, et cetera. I'll tell you my personal perspective on it, which, you know, I would have to know more about your business. I would be the first person to say that my approach is not right for everybody in every situation. So let's pretend we already had that conversation and that we have agreed that my approach is a fit for you. So the first thing I would want to get a handle on is what is the specific goal in business object in business terms. So in other words, I would like to have five more clients per month on retainer or, you know, a year from now, I'd like to have five clients on retainer uh, paying me X dollars per month. And those clients look like the following companies just as a sort of directional, you know, goal and whether it ends up being those particular companies or not, you know, whatever these, these goals never work out exactly, but at least it tells us which way we're going because, you know, there's a big difference between if you want to work with, you know, Coca-Cola versus if you want to work with a, you know, four person like seed round startup, you know, in South Lake Union, big difference there. So first thing to do is define the goal. And then we kind of work backwards from there to just come up with a rough funnel. So I do think, you know, I've done a lot of brand and growth marketing and I don't see them as different. Like to me, they're the same thing. It's like make the cash register ring. That's my job. Whether I use a brand lens or a growth lens to get there, I don't care. Uh, so there's a little bit of a hybrid of the two. So we'd say, okay, we want five clients that that look like this. What do we think it's going to take to get there? So, you know, if, if, if you say, well, probably, you know, me speaking at conferences that look like this and this, appearing on podcasts like this one and this one, getting media coverage and publications like this. And then probably, you know, if I am at six conferences like this over the next year, I bet you that I will have a hallway conversation with one of these people that will, you know, lead to an engagement. And you know how these things work. It's it's in our line of work. You can't draw the same kind of straight line to these results as you could with if you're selling, you know, t-shirts on Shopify or something. You know, it's a it's a very long winding path to get there. But so that would be the first step. What is our goal? And we go, okay, that seems in reality, it's not going to work out like this, but this seems like a credible path to get there. So we know which way we're headed. That's the first step. Second step is to align on what is the story that we are telling as a human. And I would, so first of all, I would for sure recommend that all of this comes from your personal accounts, not your company, because people will always care about you more than they care about your company. So what is the story that you are telling? And I, I don't know enough about you to, to, 
say what that should be, but you know, you are Tim, you are the founder of this agency that does X for Y clients. Uh, and the the next step is to come up with three, I, it could be it could be four or five or two or whatever, usually three talking points within that, that sort of generally speaking, lead people down a problem aware, solution aware, ready to convert sort of direction. Like, you know, uh, in this environment, you know, companies uh, need to, uh, so something like what you just said in this recession, consumer confidence is an all time low. So make them problem aware uh, and then solution aware. And so everyone's like, well, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, well, what do you do about it? Well, the answer is to build a great direct a great direct relationship with your customers through brilliant you know communication whatever and then the third part is and I, Tim, am the person to go to for that. Then within each one of those, there's subheads that have reasons to believe. So I borrowed this. I used to do a lot of work for Procter & Gamble with like Swiffer and Febreze and stuff. And and one of the, one of the I don't know if they invented this or not, but one of their things that they use a lot is the reason to believe, which is a factual claim that the statement, a factual statement that the claim you made is true. So if you're saying that I, Tim, am an expert on creating, you know, um, creative that will drive business results, well, what, what are the reasons to believe that that's true. And I don't know you well enough to say those, what those would be, but you know, we could come up with that's like clients, projects, awards, stuff like that. I've been in business long enough that there must be something. Yeah. Unless you just somehow stumbled your way here. Started, you with, know, through all these started with $10 million and here we are. <laughs> right. Much now we've got eight years later. That's not actually yeah. how it started. <laughs> <laughs> right. So figure out the story and then every single thing that you post on social media, every piece of content, everything you say when you are on a podcast or something is going to be from that framework. It's going to be one of those talking points, one of the reasons to believe, and there will come up with some sort of common themes that will hit on those. And again, I don't know well know you well enough to say what those would be, but you know, for example, I've been working with a friend of mine who is a chef and his thing, he's opening a sandwich restaurant in New York in the next couple months, whenever that becomes viable. And so he kind of came from the fine dining world. Like he, he, he was on that show, beat Bobby Flay. He won it. And he's worked at all these fancy fine dining restaurants and stuff. And so his story is kind of like, I, I came from the fine dining world where I worked at all these fancy restaurants and I don't, I don't remember their names cause I don't know that much about that world, but I'm told they're very prestigious. <laughs> so I worked at all these fine dining restaurants, but you know what I realized is I like sandwiches. And so I want to bring the level of like craft and care that I learned at culinary school and at all these fine dining restaurants to making sandwiches for you people, for my friends in Brooklyn. Um, so that's kind of his story. Uh, and so anytime, so if you look at his social media, sandwiches is one of his pillars, which actually nobody talks about in food. Like sandwiches are not, that's still one of these categories that nobody really owns. You know, like there was, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, like organ meat became cool. Like there was that restaurant Animal in LA that sort of, that was their story is like, hey, we forgot you know, in the past, people used to eat the heart and lungs and liver and all this stuff, but now we just throw it away. But, you know, what are we missing? Actually, organ meat is part of fine dining was their story. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! <laughs> 
How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. So anyhow, uh, once we have our story and the talking points, kind of what the themes are, you know, think of it sort of like a presidential, like a political campaign. You sort of know what you're going to say. Now you got to go out and say it. And that is when you create a, a content calendar or a channel strategy, whatever word you want to use for it, is to figure out where are we going to get this out? That could be, and that depends on your budget, your natural aptitude, your, your resources, like, but whatever social media channels, uh, podcast, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, are you going to publish a print newsletter? I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily a great strategy for most people, but it might be for somebody, a print newsletter is a perfect fit. Um, that's it. And then the last part of it is we sort of, so I, I say, here's the game plan, go for it. And then typically a will wait a month or something like that. And I'll check in with them, uh, give them like, I give them a set of essentially tactical guidelines that regardless of your strategy, you should be using, like, here's how to use hashtags and here's the tools you should use to track them and blah, blah, blah. A month later, we check in and I kind of give them some feedback and then we're done. I mean, the relationship is similar to like a strength coach. 
or yes, a plot yes, it's got, it, yes, it's it's just it's just like that. Yes. So for you, what I would say is like, what is the idea that you want to stand for? I, I fundamentally, what this is is like a thought leadership strategy for for people like you. I think. So what is the idea that you want to stand for and be top of mind for, such that even if I don't think I need to work with you right now, you know how these things work. It's like there's that oh shit moment, and your clients, your potential clients, are thinking. Well, who do I call? I get like X just happened and you want to be the first person they call. So what do you want to be top of mind for would be my question. And then once we have that figured out, well, now it's just a matter of creating like content to get that out there. And for people like you, you don't need a huge audience. If you if you want to be a creator, like if you want to be a YouTuber, you need, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of views a month in order for that to be like, you know, financially viable. But for you, you don't need that, you know, because if you got what, 20 clients a year that are the right clients, you're good, right? Yeah. You only need a handful of them realistically, yep. and you're just yep. trying to grow the accounts over time. And so, so, I mean, it's interesting that in talking to you, there's a certain point where your services would be hugely useful in focusing the goals of the business or, or, or executing the goals of the business. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, interesting offering. Uh, do you have a lot of competition? Are there others like you or how many others are you? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm I phrased sure that quite right. <laughs> yeah, there's tons. I, I don't know specifically how many. I don't know of anybody sort of in my particular kind of circle um, that does what I do. Uh, but there are in general, I mean, there's a million like, you know, personal branding or social media coaches out there. So it's far from unique. Because I don't lose a lot of sleep thinking about my competitors. I'm mostly just trying to figure out what my clients need. Sometimes I wonder, should I spend more time understanding who my competition is? But I don't know, it hasn't happened quite yet. So that was that was actually kind of a question that I had for you. Has, far- has there ever been a time where you were like, uh, got caught by surprise and you were like, oh, shit, I should have been paying more attention to this person? I think the moments that I get caught by surprise are when a client comes in and asks for something outside of our core competency. And I'm pretty confident and the team's really smart. And I know that we can we can get up to speed and learn. Like, what, like you know, there's always a moment in life where you've there's something you've never done. But once you've done it, yeah. you have a pretty solid sense of how to do it. And there's a first time for yeah. everything. So why can't this be the moment? And then, sure. and then you were talking about earlier, it takes a moment to pitch, but then you may lose out to a specialist. And those are the moments I've been caught flat-footed where I thought, oh, I could figure that out or I could bring in another person and bolt on and together I can work, you know, my team can work through the diagnosis and then I've got this person with the technical ability and then from there we should be able to execute over time. Actual clients, once I have them, I mean, truly I haunt their halls and I get to know their business and like it's a kind of an ethnographic style of working. Mm-hmm. You go and sit down and you learn everything you can about what they're doing to the point that we've always ingratiated ourselves well with clients and became useful in that regard and that we knew the business inside now and mm-hmm. useful that way. Being audacious is something that I've had to give myself permission to do over time. As far as I'm always, I mean, I'm, I'm very intuitive, but I'm intuitive because I've read and I've, and I'm informed, but there comes a moment where you've got to, you know, just go for it or say, this is the big thing that I think we can truly do. And uh, that can be counterintuitive to a guy who is methodical, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yep. so maybe the term I'm looking for is methodically audacious. And that's something I need to figure out how to do. You know, that points to an idea that one one of my professors in college had her kind of focus was on paradoxes. And she pointed out something that I guess maybe is obvious to most people wasn't obvious to me is that our strengths 
are the same as our weaknesses. It just depends on the context. For example, uh, you said being methodical. I'm a very methodical, analytical, kind of rational, pragmatic person, which is great in a lot of contexts, but there's other times where it's a, a liability because it means I've set the bar lower than it actually is by being, like I said, quote unquote, realistic. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to learn how to do you know, I'm always learning how to be better at this is like, take a deep breath and, you know, put aside the thing that has served me so well in so many other situations and say, I'm just going to trust right now that I'm just going to go with this and, and ignore all these like alarm bells going off in my head because I can feel right now that I'm operating out of fear, not logic. Yeah. I think that being a business owner in the middle of a recession, you have to step back sometimes and try not to operate out of fear, but ask yourself, well, what are the things that have worked in the past? And I did a bit of research on this question, right? Like when Jay Inslee told everybody to stay home and I thought, oh dear, what's this going to do to the economy? And um, I began to do some research. And I think the insight I ran into was that uh, companies that either maintained or increased their market or increased their marketing spends grew at a time when most people receded. I think when the tide Mm -hmm. is rising, everybody rises. But if you can scramble ahead a few steps right now, you'll be that much further or the other deal was just try to hold your team together. So when the time comes that, you know, the tide begins to rise again, you'll at yep. least be in the boat and ready to go. Well, I have, uh, I, I've been, this is my, what, fourth recession now. The first one was the dot-com uh, one in 2000 or whatever it was when I was first trying to get my foot in the door. And right as I was kind of starting to get a little bit of traction, that blew up and kind of sent me back to my crappy dead end job. I was like, ugh, all right. So I rebuilt. And then again, right as I was starting to get a little bit of traction, 9 11 happened, which was not exactly a recession, but kind of sort of. Definitely took the wind out of everybody's sails. Certainly nobody's wanting to talk about hiring a graphic designer, you know, uh, at that time. And then in 2008, that one as well. So I've been through a few of these and the first two especially hit me hard. And so I've constructed my whole life in a way to be anti-fragile, knowing that these things are going to happen, you know, from time to time. And I never wanted to be, to use your phrase, caught flat-footed again by one of these things. So this one actually did not affect me at all in any meaningful way because I've constructed my whole life. Like our company, the one I'm a partner in, has been fully remote since day one. We've got people in like Atlanta, LA, here, Michigan. So for us, business as usual. There's some minor inconveniences, but really didn't change anything. And in fact, it helped us because everyone else, as you said, pulled back their marketing spend. And so in, I think it was April, Facebook ads went down like 30%, which is our main acquisition channel for that company. So I was like, great, I'm going to spend every penny we have on this. And we grew like 20% that month. So, you know, to answer your question, and and I, I, I kind of feel bad, but I guess I don't. For all the people who sort of got fat and happy and had too many free snacks and fancy offices, and stuff to those people, I'd say, well, if you didn't see this one coming, then I don't want to tell you because for years, everybody with two brain cells to rub together has said like, wow, things are really overheated right now. This bubble is going to pop at some point. And I don't think anybody knows when that's going to happen. But like, if you don't construct your life such that you can survive that bubble popping, then you don't deserve to be in business. And I don't mean to be harsh, but it's just the truth. Yeah. 
2008, I was a freelance copywriter. And before he knew it, I had to go get a job. For sure. And, and, it's rough. And, and it wasn't what I wanted, but I, you know, I just sort of sat down and I got to work. And, I, and, and in the end, I learned quite a bit. I had a job for about six years. And then I had an opportunity to go back out on my own. And off we go again. And this time there's a recession once again. And I remember when I started the business thinking at some point I'm going to run into recession. And my goal is just to beat this thing or to outlast it this time. Exactly. Exactly. And I should be clear, I, I'm not at all, uh, I don't mean to sound, you know, merciless towards the many people who, you know, have been doing their best to run a business responsibly and are taking a hit from this. I'm completely sympathetic to those. The people I'm sort of throwing rocks out of the people who got too fat and happy and thought it would never happen to them, you know, and now their employees are mad because they don't get enough free snacks. Yeah. <laughs> For a lot of entrepreneurs, the inside voice is occasionally sort of ruthless. And we just have to learn how to speak to other people. <laughs> I run into that all the time. I'm like, don't say that, even though you're thinking that. Just keep well, moving. On, on the other hand, and I should say, I have shot myself in the foot so many times in my career by opening my mouth when I shouldn't have. However, I'm also learning that at this point in my career, I have earned the right to open my mouth sometimes more than I think, more than I think I'm allowed to. Because the difference is when I was opening my mouth when I was 22, I didn't really know anything. And so the stuff I said was not necessarily wrong. It just, I, I, I didn't have the credibility to stick my neck out. And at this point, I've done enough things that I've noticed when I do stick my neck out, it seems to work out now. So I never want to be like arrogant and be the, you know, I never want to be that guy. But at the same time, I also have seen that when I have stuck my neck out, it's paid off. And so that's another, another thing that I'm sort of training myself to be less risk averse about. Makes sense. Like it's okay to have an opinion. And especially for people like us, if I turn off eight people, that's fine. As long as it means I turn on two people. Earlier, you mentioned there's the idea of your company and then there's the idea of you. And I've always understood that clients hire you. They trust you. Yes. I have a team. And, and there's a team behind the company. And sometimes I'm leery of being too far out front because I have this team that the client gets to know as well. Yep. And, and so we do via at least Instagram over the past few months, we've tried to pull back the curtain. We have front of the house. We're going to show off research and projects. We have back of the house, the people who mm -hmm. work here and their dogs and their cats, et cetera. Yep. And I guess that's sort of the mix that we've come up with over time. It's a slightly where you're more of the Oprah sort of mentality in which I am this face and, and from it, and apologies for the analogy, but I've used that over time that sure. there comes a moment where somebody potentially has to step forward and be the face yeah. and sort of, you know, her soul comes out and her experiences come out and I suppose so do yours. And that's, that's what you're leveraging. What's the gap between, I guess, who you are privately and who they see publicly? So to sort of tie the two things together here, this is a, you know, there, there's a concept, I don't know who came up with it, called like the founder trap, which is basically if you have somebody, you know, people like the founder a lot, well, it can't always be about the founder. So how do you kind of deal with that? Well, first of all, I would say a lot of people are scared of this. And that's sort of an objection that people have to the way I do things. Say, well, first of all, this is a great problem to have. If you're in the situation, and, and this is not a problem that I'm not saying you, not you in particular, but in general, like you don't currently have the problem of a million Fortune 500 companies beating down your door that want to work with you personally. If we ever have that problem, great, let's figure it out. But first of all, I, I don't, we don't currently have that problem, so let's not worry about it. Second, if you do a really good job of, of earning trust yourself, um, I will want to work with your team because you believe in them. Like that's that's enough for me. You, if you say, you know what, you actually don't want to work with me on this because I hired 
you know, Susan, and she's way better at this than I am. So I'm going to introduce you guys and you're going to work with her. Trust me, she's way better at this than I am. Then that's, you know, kind of how you bridge the gap. I, it's by the transitive property. I have a belief in the team because you believe in them. It's not tricking. It's not bait and switch. We're like, oh, I'm going to trick the client into thinking they're going to work with me, but they're not really. It's, it's if you believe that I am a world-class thought leader on this particular thing, then you're going to follow me wherever I say that we should go. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that, may, that makes sense that they do trust the team or do not trust the team based on their relationship with you. Yeah. Just, just like, you know, fighters, like I, I do jujitsu and follow MMA and stuff and fighters have different coaches for different things. You know, they have a wrestling coach, they have a striking coach, a grappling coach, conditioning coach, and you know, and then there's one head coach, but anyhow. Um, so the difference between myself, you know, publicly and privately, as far as that goes, um, my personality is the same. I just have a lot of interests that I don't talk about, uh, on my social media because my audience doesn't care about them, you know, and that's not that they're secret or something like that is just they just literally don't care <laughs> for example you know i read about and listen like I, I follow finance and investing probably more than anything else like my channel is about music but i don't really pay that much attention to music i listen to podcasts about startups and investing my audience doesn't care about that because they're like music people they want to hear about pantera not you know this week in startups yeah yeah that's similar and if they were interested in those things, we would talk about those things. Oh, I would love to. Yeah. But I'm also not going to like push against the river and try to force my audience to care about something that they don't, which is a mistake that a lot of people make. Like you don't get to choose what your audience is interested in. I sometimes leave Easter eggs out just enough and people will look at And it's amazing what they'll know about you. I, I've built mm -hmm. a handful of boats over the years and... On my LinkedIn page, I have one article that I put up that of a boat that I had built that had been reviewed. And every once in a while, somebody stumbles into that and they want to talk about that. But I do wonder about truly focusing the story on my LinkedIn page to agency owner, marketer. Yep. Um, I mean, truly the gig is I want to figure out how to help you, you know, whatever, yep. whatever the thing is. And there's a million tactics we can chase after that. But I do think that, as you said, those Easter eggs or breadcrumbs, that is the thing that I recommend is, you know, 5% of your content is that stuff. For one, because like people just want to see you as a well-rounded human being, not just this like machine that's focused on your business. Second is because in the event that you do match with somebody in your audience for one of these kind of random things like wooden boats or whatever, that's for sure going to be the thing that converts them. And, you know, that could be like, you know, the CMO of some Fortune 500 company might be like, you know, you said a lot of things, but when I saw that you were into the such and such boat, that's when I said, this is my guy. Yeah. The guy hates the McGregor 26. He must be fine and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so those little things can actually drive results. So, so I, I wouldn't throw them out completely. So my, my personal Instagram is all dogs, boats, and then... Professionally, Clyde Golden is his team and research and projects should... I would move all that to your personal account. All of the professional stuff to my personal yep. account. Yep. I would say, again, without looking at anything, this is just the general playbook. Move all the professional stuff to your personal account. Make dogs, boats, and family 5% of it. Uh, have the Clyde Golden account be one of those grid accounts that's like, you know, just 12 things that's sort of almost like a landing page for the company. You don't need to update it that often. Have everyone follow you. That's the, I, I, that's what I would do. Interesting. Interesting. Is there any last, any tips that you would have for anybody out there or anything specific you'd like to leave behind? Storytelling. I think that's the one common thread here that is regardless of what channel or project or anything, 
think that human beings are wired to process things in a narrative format. We're wired for like, remember, we are like hunter gatherers. Imagine us still like a bunch of cavemen and women sitting around a campfire eating a roasted woolly mammoth leg. Like that's who we are, whether that's happening on YouTube or at a conference or whatever, that's that's still who we are. So don't get lost in tactical stuff like what email marketing software you should use and what hashtag and this, that, and the other, like that stuff is all, you know, that matters, but storytelling first, if you get that part right, then figuring out the other stuff is easy. Do not lose sight for the forest through the trees. The storytelling is the most important thing in my personal opinion. Thank you. That's really interesting. Thanks for your time today. I really appreciated this. Yeah, anytime. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! Yeah! Oh, the wrath of the buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The wrath of the buzzard. P-R-O-H files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.